Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Chris Maybe. As you may recall, last week, Pastor Dave, who helped us uh, very helpfully understand John chapter 10, he made a comment in there that I want to repeat today, where he said, all biblical text without context is pretext. Which is to say that when we come to the Bible, you can't simply jump into a passage or parachute in and benefit from the text to the extent to which God, God's Word intends without knowing the underlying story and context. In John 14, to that end, in John 14, where we find ourselves is in the small upper room in ancient Jerusalem, 24 hours or less from Jesus' death, and He's with His disciples in the upper room in this last teaching session. Try to imagine the scene, if you can, in this small upstairs room in old Jerusalem, the day before Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus has much to tell us in his, uh, to his original disciples and us in this text for its purposed and encouraging, unifying, and missional. You see, Jesus is seeking faith in this passage, but he's also seeking comfort and unity in his people in mission as he prepares them for his departure to be with the Father, to be with the Father. To put it in simple terms, Jesus wants his disciples then and us now to keep our eyes on the ball, if you will, to develop and maintain a heavenly mindset amidst sorrow, confusion, and persecution. And ultimately, in this and the following texts in the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel account, Jesus wants and even commands his people to mission a mission of courage, a mission that requires work and effort, a mission that necessitates deep and intentional prayer. And he's beginning preparation for the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and this and the rest of the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel. Jesus doesn't leave us alone, nor does he leave us to wonder what our job is or leave us powerless to do what he commands. The events and meaning of Holy Week and Jesus' ongoing and present reign in the growing kingdom of God are what John, the gospel writer, has in mind for us today in this passage. Why did Jesus have to die? Why is it so important that the Messiah had to leave the very people that he was leading to lead them well? Why do you have to leave? What's the mission of the church today in our day and age? These are some of the questions that the original disciples would have had for Jesus in their time. And are some of the same questions I think it's important that we ask today of this text. You see, the, the kingdom of God has been centered on Israel up until this point in the biblical storyline. And Jesus' death and the sending of His Spirit at Pentecost initiate a new beginning for the growing kingdom of God. For Jesus' mission and the mission of the true people of God is no longer to be centered on a single nation or country who has never purposed in the long run to glorify one nation or one ethnicity, but the mission Jesus speaks of at the end of his earthly life is purpose to go out to all nations, all tribes and people groups, inviting the whole world into the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith in him. 
So as we come to John chapter 14 in these 14 verses, we find that the famous Last Supper has been consumed. Jesus, in humility, has washed His disciples' feet. Judas the traitor has been dispatched by Jesus to go and do His dirty work. And Peter's been told that he's going to deny Jesus some three times in the coming hours. Jesus is less than 24 hours from death on the cross. What's He teach His disciples at the last before His death? Well, let's pray and ask for God the Holy Spirit of Christ to illuminate us in our understanding and bring us together in mission in John 14. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that You loved us so much that You sent Jesus to die for our sins. And we're thankful that You send Your people the Spirit to illuminate our understanding that we might both believe and apply the truth. So we ask on this day and in the coming moments that You'd glorify the Son and empower Your people in mission, that we might engage our world in truth and grace and in the unity of our faith in Jesus. And it's to the praise of Your glorious grace and in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Maintaining a heavenly mindset empowers missional prayer life in a world full of doubt to the benefit of the world and the glory of God the Father in Jesus' name. In John 14, 1-14, we encounter Jesus' encouraging words to His disciples as He teaches them in three parts. Firstly, He teaches them about heavenly assurance. Number two, worldly doubt. And finally, great works in missional prayer. Now in turn, as they occur in the text, number one, heavenly assurance. Why should we focus on heaven? Maintain a heavenly mindset. Or should we? Should we focus on heaven? Not everyone agrees. I've heard many from different contexts you know, tell me, I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to think about heaven. I just want to live my life today. I just live my life to the full extent today. You know, in contrast to this, one famous Harvard physician and legal person or judge named Oliver Wendell Holmes quipped some nearly, you know, 100, 100 years ago or so that many in the church are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. So heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Has our mindset changed over the last hundred years? Well, in our text for today, Jesus has a different word for the people of God, an encouraging word about heaven. For in John 14, 1-14, we find Jesus bringing His disciples to the heavenly mindset, describing both a barrier to us understanding it as well as means of propagating its value to our world. Let's go back to the text now. John 14, verses 1-7. to Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus commands at the first. And Jesus knows a heart full of trouble in John's Gospel. I can remember, too, just right off the top of my head instances where his heart was troubled. You remember when the Greeks showed up 
as Dave preached a couple weeks ago, and his hour, he knew now his hour had come when the Greeks show up to the king of the Jews. My heart's troubled now. He knew it was his hour had come and it was time to go to the, go to the cross. But as, you, know, you may remember back to John 11, where Jesus' heart was troubled at the death of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sister's response to that, you remember? What did he do? He wept. Single verse. 11.35, he wept before he raised G, uh, Lazarus from the dead. And he knows, and he, he knows, and he doesn't wish that his disciples are going to be troubled at his departure because he knows that he's going to be raised from the dead and be with them through the power of his spirit in he- from heaven. How do the people of God avoid being troubled at death? Jesus teaches on, believe. Believe in the Father, believe also in me, he commands. Why should we believe? The skeptic might ask. Why do I need to believe in Jesus to be secure at death? Well, Jesus provides the answer for his disciples in their day and for us and ours in a word summarized in a single word, heaven. You see, friends, Jesus tells us there is a real heaven to look forward to for the faithful. And by implication, a real eternal hell to shun for those who don't believe and remain in their sins. And so if you're out there and you're contemplating mortality, maybe for the first time, you're new to the church or maybe you've been to the church and are coming back today and you're wondering about Jesus, He invites you to believe. Believe in Him. Believe in heaven as a real place. Repent of your sins and turn and be saved. Be assured of your place in heaven and eternal life with Jesus. You know, and with this offer on tap of heaven, why... Why do we fail to believe in heaven? Or why do we fail to focus on heaven as a means of encouragement and invitation to people in our day and age? You know, is it possible that many in our world today have sort of flipped the Holmesian script and now we're so earthly-minded that we're of no heavenly good? Is that possible? Are we so heavenly-minded or so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good in our quest for the good life in the here and now? Well, Paul Wolf in our upcoming conference is going to have enough to say, much to say about that, given that his book does, so I'm not going to go deeply into that here. But let me draw your attention to one set of doctrines that many, and many from inside the church, have failed to maintain with an appropriate vigor in our day and age that keep us from a heavenly mindset. The doctrines of sin, judgment, and hell. Because many churches fail to teach the biblical doctrine of sin, which leads to hell, we fail to maintain the doctrine of heaven, which Christ secures for those who put their trust in him. You know, and this isn't simply an academic issue for professional or armchair theologians to sit around a fire and discuss or sit at coffee houses. This is practical, has practical implications for all of us, because it affects how we interact with our communities and mission how we interact with our culture, with the truth of the gospel. Is it any wonder why our world is the way it is if the church, even the church, doesn't want to talk about sin? Let me provide some concrete data to put this into some sort of perspective, perhaps, for you. Ligonier Ministries, the teaching fellowship of R.C. Sproul, who's a PCA pastor who recently passed, puts out every two years a statement or a, the state of theology what they do is they passed out broadly across the United States a 35-question questionnaire, and then they tally the results and present a statement or a state of theology statement. In 2022, 
they presented their most recent data. Not surprisingly, 71% of Americans do not believe in the doctrine, the orthodox biblical doctrine of sin. 71% of all Americans, they don't believe in original sin. That is that they think that human beings are born without sin in the eyes of God. Not that surprising, but shockingly to me, 65% of evangelicals do not believe in the biblical doctrine of sin or original sin. And what I mean by evangelicals are they're, they're Protestant Christians that characteristically believe the Bible's absolutely true. The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. You need a personal experience with the Holy Spirit, and it's not optional to share your faith with people. It's a requisite for true Christians. Those are evangelicals. 65%, two out of three, according to this data, to the extent that it's true. That's bothersome to me. You know, it begs the question to me, if evangelicals believe that the Bible is without error and the very Word of God and the teaching about sin and hell are so clearly and recurrently found in the Bible, are evangelical churches teaching the Bible today? Yeah, you see, the Bible talks about sin throughout. It tells us from the very beginning that the sins of Adam and Eve in the garden are passed on to all human beings afterward from the time they're conceived. Original sin. Clearly, recurrently, throughout the Bible. You know, but you see in our world, and in our day and age in the U.S., many people now believe that the doctrines of sin and judgment and hell are not just misguided, but downright dangerous. Even evil. One theologian I trust and read reminds us that a generation ago, the world's favorite Bible verse in the United States was John 3.16. What a wonderful verse. Great verse, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in Him should have eternal life. Invitational, the Gospel. Today's favorite verse is from the Bible, but it is often taken out of context. Anybody know what it is? Matthew, or, uh, excuse me, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Hopping in on a passage outside of the context is pretext. Right? Because they typically don't quote 7, 2 through 6, which doesn't say not to judge. It just says, look at your own sin before you look at someone else's and, and judge discernibly. It doesn't say don't judge. Do we agree? How do we engage a world encouragingly and helpfully that believes any discussion of sin is evil? Do we not just talk about it in order to get along or not you know, avoid being offensive? Anglican theologian Christopher Walken in his recent best-selling book from 2022 called Biblical Critical Theory, uh, who providentially we just I, I occurred, uh, came across this uh, text from him in his book just in my regular reading in the last week or so, talks about the doctrine of sin. This is a quote from him. We can get it on the screen there. Excellent. We Christians possess a fabulous tool for cultural analysis and engagement that we so often fail to use, a great resource that can help develop winsome, penetrating, and fresh analyses of cultural trends, as well as distinctive, constructive contributions to today's social and intellectual debates. The doctrine of sin and judgment. And yet, this is the last place we would think of finding a platform for contributing to the flourishing of society. And you might ask, 
How does that work? Right? How does that work? Well, let me just say here simply, when you know you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. When I know I'm a sinner, and I know that my neighbors are also sinners, and that I'm saved by grace alone, by faith in Jesus Christ that I don't play a part of, that Jesus saves me, you're strangely enabled to approach your neighbors and non-believing neighbors and enemies with a different story, right? With integrity and care, with truth and grace and sympathy, with a willingness to listen before being heard. We Christians can sit down in solidarity with our non-believing neighbors and enemies because we believe we were once just like them, at enmity with God, and deaden our trespasses and sins. For it's only by God's grace that we believe and have everlasting life. Don't you see, we have a better story to tell the world, friends, because of the doctrine of sin, not despite it. We don't build the kingdom of God by denouncing the doctrine of sin as invalid, but by acknowledging it first in our own lives. The world will have no need for Jesus in heaven unless they know they're sinners before a holy God and at risk of going to hell forever. And you might ask, what's sin? What is sin? How will we know? What does it mean? Well, our Creator defines what sin is. He created us. Jesus defines what sin is and is not. He makes up the rules because He created us. We don't get to make up the rules. You know, and our confessional standards are simple enough. Thank God for the Westminster Confessional Standards, right? These things are wonderful. To the question, what is sin, the catechism says, uh, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. God's rules, not ours. But our world defines sin differently and typically does so in two different ways. Firstly, it defines sin as an innocent indulgence. Or secondly, it would define it as puritanical prejudice. Or, in other words, innocent indulgence, like sneaking a chocolate when you know you're not really supposed to do it, but never in a serious or injurious way. Or puritanical prejudice would be an intolerant way of imposing a narrow idea of right and wrong on other people. Judge not, lest ye be judged, you Puritan, says our world. Now, I agree with Pastor Dave completely in his recent comments from the pulpit from last week, in fact, so I hope you don't hear what I'm not saying. You remember Dave last week helpfully told us as he quoted Robert Murray McShane saying, for every look at self and sin, take ten looks at Christ. To that I say, amen, may it be for the people of God. Thank you for that, Dave. And in a church with leadership like Dave and the session of NPC where we teach the whole counsel of God, including the doctrine of sin, that ratio of discussion is life-giving life for us. But for many, for many in our day and age, as others have said, the church broadly has become a bully pulpit for representing a God without wrath who brings men and women without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Friends, we wouldn't need heaven if there wasn't a hell we wouldn't need the cross without a holy, just, and merciful God who loves sinners. And so for many in the church and beyond today, love is love. 
just love is love. You know, every, every human being will be saved regardless of what you believe or who you trust. Just be nice and carry on in your sin. But God has much to teach us about sin in the Gospel of John alone because Jesus talked a lot about it. In fact, 17 times in 13 verses, the Gospel of John's sin is mentioned. And Jesus makes clear to the Pharisees and His disciples the significance of unrepentant sin when He says in the temple in John 8, starting in verse 21, I'm going away. You will seek Me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot go. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And yet so many in our day and age want to be constructively engaged in the world in ways that are unbiblical and frankly, just ultimately unhelpful engaged with ethereal and mystical views of heaven for all that turn down the volume of the doctrines of sin and judgment in favor of more palatable and uplifting truths like creation without a fall, redemption and restoration for all, green forests, Sedona red rocks, seas, and birdsong dawn choruses, as Joachim might say. You know, for me, this is personal, which is part of the reason I think it's in this, in this message today. It's personal for me, and let me tell you why. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was asked to memorialize one of my long, longest-term friend's dad who died. I've known him for 50 years up in Akron. So he called me Wednesday night at 10 o'clock and said, can you come up and do dad's funeral on Saturday morning? And I had previous appointments and engagements here, and I didn't want to go up and not do an unthoughtful and unhelpful job, so I had to decline it. I did get a chance to go up to the funeral and be there for the calling hours and memorial and internment service. You know, it was fun to see my old friends and celebrate the life of my friend's dad, but the occasion made me really sad. You see, the pastor who officiated my place was my friend's pastor. And she preached the text before us today. John 14, 1-6. Yeah, and she was articulate and energetic, engaging, really erudite, great speaker. Introduced herself as doctor, which was fine. But it made me sad. Because what she said is she emphasized heaven in her message, but it was a place for all people. And while she talked about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, she deliberately left out 14.6b. No one comes to the Father except through me. It made me sad. I wanted to stand up, you know, reach out to my old friends. Jesus Christ is the way, friend. He is the one and the only way. Jesus is the way. But I didn't... I didn't I had my chance to officiate and encourage the people, old friends, and the truth, but I couldn't go. So for that, I'm sad, and this text is a bit ripe. Yet my sadness is informed and encouraged as Jesus teaches on in this passage, leading us to part two of the text and Jesus' words to his disciples about worldly doubt. 
When we try to demand that Jesus be our king on our terms and find that he is not, we doubt him. And when we doubt him and fail to believe that Jesus is the Christ who came to save his people from death and hell, we fail to keep our eyes on heaven. Up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has already made it clear in the two previous chapters, in chapter 12 and 13, that he's leaving the disciples and he's departing and going to the Father. And they're really struggling with that. I mean, they're having a hard time with this. What do you mean? You have to leave. They don't understand, right? They're having a hard time accepting that the King of Israel, the promised Messiah, was about to be killed and leave the people without accomplishing their goals. Wasn't the Messiah going to come and restore power and glory to the nation of Israel? Wasn't the Messiah going to make Israel great again and cast off the bondage of the Roman occupiers and other ethnic miscreants? Where are you going, Jesus? What do you mean you're leaving us? Is it true, Jesus, that you're really leaving us? Show us God the Father, Philip will ask. Jesus will respond. Back to the text starting in 8 to 11, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you all, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves." You know, Jesus' glory and his mission surprised the disciples as it corrected them. Doesn't, uh, doesn't he surprise us too as he encouraged and corrects us? We have expectations, and when they're not bet, we doubt. Jesus corrects his people as he encourages us. You know, Jesus is in complete union with the Father and the Father with the Son. Their mission are one and the same, Jesus tells his disciples. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, when Jesus ascends to God the Father and continues His reign, Jesus and the Father then send the Holy Spirit to the people of God at Pentecost and beyond to keep us, the people of God, the faithful, in union with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in mission, in the mission to the world. Why do so many people struggle to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world? Is it because we want to well, we know for certain, and the Bible's clear about that, that it requires a super endowment with the Holy Spirit and regeneration, but is it also maybe because we want a Savior we can domesticate? One that will do the things we want to make us flourish in our society, perhaps even in the sinful ways that we desire? It's interesting to note, you know, in, in this next paragraph of comments or personal. I, I, I had, wasn't able to confirm, the, talk to Dave or confirm them with commentators, but just have a personal observation to note here. It's interesting. You know, Philip, who brought the Greeks to see Jesus a few days before, you know, and it was, Jesus, it was Philip that did that, and Dave made the point in his message on this text, that, you know, Philip's a Greek name. It's really interesting. He was a Jew, but it was a Greek name. And so they went to Philip with the Greek name so that the Greeks would take him to Jesus. You remember? And it was Philip here that comes with the question. Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Give us proof, Jesus. As if to say, it seems strange to me that you responded to the Greek outsiders the way you did. I thought you were the king of the Jews. 
How can we be sure that you're the promised Messiah of Israel? To that, Jesus replies, I am God, Philip. Don't you know that what I say and what I do are the words and works of God the Father? Believe that I am God or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Well, what are the works that the Father does through Jesus? Well, it's been debated over the church over the centuries. Some have tried to equate the two as one and the same thing. Ancient theologians respected that the words and the works are really the same thing, different way of saying the same thing. But other more recent scholarship has suggested that, and it seems to me to make sense here in these texts, that the words and works of Jesus are two different things. Words mean a lot, but for many, powerful works are more compelling. Words lead to faith, and so do works, according to Jesus. And this fact can be really helpful for us in our day in our current mission in the church, right? For we tell the world about Jesus, not just by what we say, but by what we do and how we do it. You might remember Jesus' interaction with the unbelievers in John chapter 10. He says, that if, if, he says that if He is not doing the works of God the Father, then don't believe Him. Which is illustrative, isn't it? If not convicting for us. You know, if we aren't doing the works of God, can we expect our world to believe our testimony about Jesus? Reasonable question from that. You know, John identifies two types of works in his gospel account using the word over 25 times. The works of the world, which are evil. The works of, Jesus, of God through Jesus Christ and the people that would believe in Him, which are good works. And the, and the works of Jesus and those who are called as to the people of God are particularly purposed. They're particularly purposed. Remember Jesus in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6? Where the skept- he feeds the masses. They come across the water. And then the skeptics come up to him and, you know, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You remember the discourse? Remember the scene? And then they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What does Jesus say? Jesus answers them. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You know, this point is, I think, important for us to understand well, for the works that we're called to are not works that earn our salvation with Christ, but they're done because of our faith and salvation in Christ. Do you see the difference? They don't earn our salvation for us, and yet we're called to works because of our salvation in Christ. And these works are purposed to help other people believe in Jesus. So how do we respond? What are the works that we're called to in our current cultural moment? How do we respond to this? Well, Jesus answers these questions, I think, in the last section of this message in verses 12 to 14 in his call to us to greater works and missional prayer. Jesus has been appealing for faith as he seeks to comfort his immediate disciples in their day and ours, at their day and their time and us and ours. So what are we to do? Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. You know, notice what Jesus says here. He's not only directing his apostles to mission, but he's directing all who believe in him. What's the text say there? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. You know, we don't get a hall pass 
to miss school on the day that we talk to the world about Jesus, friends. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the work that I do. And the works that Jesus has in mind for us aren't simply deeds of humility and acts of love or even the simple proclamation of Jesus' words. All things which Jesus has done in the last three chapters and are important and are part of Jesus' work. But it's not limited to that. And how do we know? Because of Jesus' words here. What's He say? Greater works than these works she will do. Greater works than these He will do. You know what? Kind of almost shocking. What, what do you mean, Jesus? We're going to do, your believers are going to do greater works than you? How does that work? How, does that, how can that happen? Well, Jesus, He answers the question in the last part of verse 12. What's He say there? Because I'm going to the Father, you say. Because I'm going to the Father, these works are empowered by God precisely because Jesus has died, been raised from the dead, ascended to God the Father, and is up at His throne now ruling from the right hand of God. You see, friends, the words and works, signs and wonders Jesus performed during His ministry could not fully accomplish their true and final end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and been exalted to the world as the world's only true King. Only then could they be seen for what they are. Only then could the Spirit of Christ empower and deploy the people of God into the mission of the world. What a privilege we have, Christian. What a responsibility. What a responsibility. And, you know, we have the rest of the New Testament report that tells us what we need to know about the scope of the works these greater works. What's the scope of the greater works? What do you mean greater works? What are they? Well, we've got the report of the book of Acts and the entire rest of the New Testament to tell us, to give us an idea of what these greater works are, right? Jesus doesn't leave us alone to do the works He requires, and He empowers them from on high. Remember, right before Jesus ascends to heaven and He says to His followers in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, in the programmatic statement for the entire first 30 years of the church, what's He say? You will, verse 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The work Jesus began to do during His earthly ministry are the very things He continues to do now in His people through the power of His Spirit. Greater works than these. You know, so for example, I'll just give you one example because I'm long-winded as I usually am, but and I don't want to go too hard into this text because I'm um, looking forward to Pastor Dave teaching us on it on Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Sunday, Dave. So, uh, But anyway, this is a great example. Jesus ascends to the Father. A few days after at Pentecost, a few days later, the Spirit comes down. It's a public event. They can hear it. People are speaking in tongues and all kinds of stuff starts happening. What's, what's Peter do in chapter 2? Right, He gives a long speech. Sermon speech talks about a couple of wonderful passages, how Jesus fulfills those passages. What happens? What happens after the speech? You remember? 3,000 people repented. 3,000 people repented and were baptized and came to faith. In one day, the text says. And incidentally, I'll just mention it in passing. They didn't have running water really there. There wasn't like a big river. So just I want you to ponder how they were baptized, whether they 
you know, dove in or were dunked or whether they were sprinkled or, I mean, the meth, you know, it's interesting to ponder that here. But, but my point is 3,000 people, 3,000 people in one day, greater works, Jesus says, greater works indeed in the mission to the world. You see, friends, God's power has been given to God's people so that God's glory may be directed to God's Son. The filling of the Spirit of the Spirit of God, the people of God, is not an ad extra found at the extremes of our religion, but is fundamental for authentic Christianity. Our mission to the world is not an option, friends, but a privilege, a necessity, and a command. And yet Jesus encourages us further in our dependence and freedom as he invites us into missional prayer. Missional prayer in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And you see, friends, while we're free and encouraged to pray for things, this text is far from an endorsement to twist God's arm to get anything we want. Because of verse 13b. If you hop in on verse 14, now all of a sudden, I want this. If I just ask Jesus hard enough, I'm getting it. Right? It says it right there in verse 14. In context, because of Jesus' word at the end of verse 13, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, friends, when we trace the prayers of the people of God in the New Testament, what we find were that they were purpose at the first and of primary importance to glorify God in the mission of the church. So whether we have a big church or a small church, lots of money or just scrape by, have worship music and performances that rival rock concerts or simply sing the hymnal in unprofessional voices, let us do it, friends, to the glory of God and Christ Jesus. When we concentrate our prayers and these greater works on the glory of God, and in the name of Jesus Christ, and in the purposes and mission of the church, things happen. People and lives are transformed. Communities are changed. And prayers are answered. Elizabeth Deacon, our, our young kid ministry director, you guys all know Elizabeth. She gave our devotional this week at the staff meeting on Tuesday, which was terrific. Kind of tugged at my heart a little bit. She drew a metaphor of her daughter Eleanor's dancing. And they've been to a lot of different both professional and amateur dancing events. You know, she said these words, which are fairly helpful. I'm paraphrasing most of it. You see, when the light is on and the dancers are on point and the music is synchronized, there's a tremendous beauty and effectiveness in the performance. There's unity in effort and unity in mission. And when we here at NPC and in Christ-centered, Christ-preaching churches all around the world are together in purpose, missional in prayer, and in worship in the preached word, the sacraments. The Father is glorified in Jesus Christ, and the church becomes unified in her greater works. Elizabeth said, and this is a quote, when it's right, we see what we're supposed to see, and we feel what we're supposed to feel. And guess what? So do the people who don't believe that are in the assembly. And so do the people all around when we step out of here and go out into our world when they see us 
and interact with us, right? Greater works than these, friends. Greater works we do together. Are we praying and hungering for God to work in our world and in our day? Crying to Him, crying out to Him in repentance. Crying out to Him to bring people to faith. Asking Him to empower us in the mighty works and mission in our homes, in our businesses, in our operating rooms, in hospital wards, in schools. Are we prepared and motivated to do our part as the children of the living God to make a difference in the world? in the mission of God to seek and save the lost. Maybe our prayers aren't answered because we're asking for the wrong things. Maybe we fail to see the progress we want to see in our world and culture because we don't ask for enough. Do we really believe Jesus' invitation to us that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it? Do we believe it? Let me close with a quote from John Newton. 18th century was on point with this text, saying, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.